everyone. Welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And with me, Robert Peston. So this week is Davos, isn't it? So we thought we would uh, do a special episode, kind of demystifying what actually goes on there, explain what happens and how important it is. Because, I mean, you've been to it loads. I know you've been watching it this week as well, yeah, haven't yeah. you? Yeah, I mean, I went for well over a decade. I was privileged enough to have a very special media pass, which got me absolutely everywhere. I've got a little bit of FOMO uh, by not about not being there <laughs> this year, because actually quite a lot is going on this year. And I'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. And yeah. we'll also draw back the veil on what the... Um, billionaires get up to in the early hours oh, of the morning. Oh, I can't wait to hear what you're going to say on that. So um, let me give you a flavour of where this whole thing started and why. So it's a German economist and engineer called Professor Klaus Schwab who started bringing together various leaders and academics in Davos in 1971. He chose Davos, which is this town in Switzerland, because he wanted to take people away from the everyday, get them out into the mountains and hopefully inspire lots of, of thought. Now, he had this theory, didn't he, called stakeholder capitalism. This idea that you, you shouldn't just cater for shareholders in your companies, you should cater for all stakeholders. So your employees, your suppliers, the community you're in. I should point out it's not his idea alone, stakeholder capitalism, but you're right. He, yeah. he, 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 it's this sort of respectable garb around this deal-making yeah. venue. So he brought these people together to talk about that. And, and I kind of, I guess the premise originally was how the European firms could catch up with all the American ones. So that was the kind of start of it. And yeah, then it kept expanding every year. They started putting out reports from the stuff that they talked about there. And then in 1987, it became the World Economic Forum, a not-for-profit group. It's this four-day event, which uh, businesses pay a load of money to go to. What is it now? Something like $28,000 a ticket. Per person. So if, yeah. you're, if you're a business person, you have to pay you know, roughly £25,000 £25, or $28,000. And I think it's, it's double that the firm has to pay every year as a member in order to get your yeah. senior people there. So it's not cheap. And one of the things we'll talk about is why companies think it's worth the money. Yes. And they do get big names there, don't they? They've had loads of, uh, you know, they get all the kind of world leaders there and then they get the celebs, Bono, Prince William, David Attenborough. So there are these regulars like Tony Blair, like, believe it or not, Will I Am is there pretty much every year these Can't wait days. To hear what he has to say. Um, and then there are the sort of mega rich billionaire bankers who are there year after year. So it's an almost unique mix of people discussing really important ideas. Uh, about the future of the world. So in recent years, they've obviously been obsessed with climate change. This year, the theme of this year is, I think, called Rebuilding Trust and actually restoring most of, trust, or Restoring yeah. Trust. And most of the focus seems to be on the impact of AI economically, politically, socially. And actually, some of the events are live streamed. I've been listening to some of them and they're pretty interesting. Uh, we, we'll, we'll come back to that. And then there are extraordinary parties, which I've been a few over the years with, you know, the priciest wine and, and champagne you've likely to ever try. And I have to say, I don't know whether they've cleaned up their act much, but in the old days, there would be certain billionaires, particularly from the former Soviet Union, who would host parties where there were a fairly conspicuous number of what you might call Russian escorts. So that's uh, what the ticket pays for. Um, anyway, <laughs> so it's God, a lot. Really? Is that the reality that you go to this business event and then there's a load of prostitutes shipped in? 
I, as I say, I don't know if they cleaned up their app, but I have been to a number of parties over the years where it was pretty obvious what was going on. My goodness. Um, you know, it's quite hard not to, it's, it's, you know, I mean, it is amazing in, in some ways, not only, as I say, the world leaders who, who turn up and, you know, again, we'll talk about this in a minute, I guess, but I mean, you know, we've got the foreign minister of, of Iran, a not uninteresting person giving a keynote speech today. Yesterday, we had the prime minister of China. I mean, that was a really interesting speech. He's, you know, in a world where protectionism is back, and some would say this is very disingenuous, he gave a speech in which he said, let's get back. He didn't mention Ricardo, but he sort of said, let's get back to free trade and countries just specialising in, you know, what would be regarded as the sort of you know, great 19th century British economist, David Ricardo, you know, great proponent of free trade, saying that countries should not manufacture everything. They should just concentrate on the things that they're best at. And this was basically China saying to, I think, America, please stop blocking, you know, sales of, for example, sensitive AI chips to, yeah. <laughs> to us. So, um, but they're wrong again then, that. Oh, God, yeah, this is all about, you know, because he also, I mean, to be frank, it was also, let's say, somewhat hypocritical because he also pointed out that, you know, on the latest stats, China has, it was responsible for a third of all global manufacturing. Uh, so they're the only country in the world that actually manufactures everything. So unless they think that they have competitive advantage in absolutely everything, there's a bit of hypocrisy going on here. Anyway, the fundamental point is that it is an extraordinary, weird, surreal event. I mean, I just want to tell you a little bit about Davos as a place. Um, think about Bournemouth, put on the top of the Swiss Alps. Yeah. That's what it's like, right? Because it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it, it's a bunch of sort of bed and breakfast for skiers and, you know, people go there for the air, they go there and ski. Yeah. It is incredibly beautiful. When I first started going, there were loads of dowdy places. It is so now financially successful. Yeah. There's so much money that's gone. Through. I mean, Klaus Schwab himself has become an immensely wealthy man off the back of this. And the redevelopment over the years is astonishing. There are now lots of swanky establishments, whereas in the old days, as I say, it was a lot like Bournemouth. If you're an ordinary mortal, it's a bit of a schlep. You have to go to, you know, you go to Swiss Airport and then you get a train which takes something like three hours up the mountain. So it's a proper journey. It is an incredibly beautiful journey. And I have to say, you know, when I first started going, I, I realised quite how terrible British trains are because if the train up the mountain is five seconds late, that is regarded by the Swiss as a total failure. Wow. Um, I mean, it is that, so that bit of it is extraordinary. And you have to change trains at a place called Landquart. So it's actually two trains. However, yeah. of course, the and billionaires don't have to take the train. No. There's a private airport about uh, 10 miles away and they all take the private jet and then come in a limo. But if you're a really top person, you go in your private jet and then you get a helicopter in. Oh my goodness. And there are a lot of them there. I was looking at the figures on it. I think last year there were 116 billionaires who went to Davos. Also, am I right that the, the large firms as part of this have to bring one woman for every four men that go because there are so few women there. And I think something like the highest proportion of women they've ever had there was in 2020 and it was 24%. So this is 
basically full of rich blokes. Well, I did listen to I did listen to actually one of their sessions yesterday called The Economics of Gender Parity, in which they did admit that it's going to take on current forecasts. This is for the whole world, and maybe they were trying yeah. to justify the intrinsic sexism of who turns up there, but they were saying, you know, that it's going to take 120 years to reach gender parity at current Oh, current my rates. God, 120 so, years. You'd think women had only just turned up on the scene. Anyway, <laughs> in a way, what I'm illustrating here is people turn up and they sort of say, oh, the world's so terrible and it's awful that we're so rich and we've got to somehow use all <laughs> our wealth to make the world a bit better. And a lot of people go there to make their consciences feel a bit better. I was yeah. quite struck, and this is classic, that there's a, you know, a report released in Davos, I think sponsored by Oxfam, and a lot of quite you know well-known celebs and less well-known business people have signed it. And they say, we're millionaires, we're billionaires. Tax us, please tax us. We're not being taxed enough. Uh, get, put it, put, you know, do, do a wealth tax. <laughs> and look, uh, you know, I've talked before, I think there is a case for a wealth tax. Quite interesting, however, that although they want to be taxed, you've got Rachel Reeves, who's uh, the you know, Labour Shadow Chancellor, turning up to Davos. There is literally zero chance of her saying in Davos, or indeed probably at any point in the run-up to the general election, that Labour will take the advice yeah. of these you know, millionaires and billionaires who include the likes, actually, I noticed, of Simon Pegg. Right, I think we should take a quick uh, break and then, of course, we'll be back with more of your salacious stories after the break. So the question I have about this is someone, I've never actually been to Davos. I always covered it every year and I, I don't think the BBC ever had enough money to send me. And And I guess the question I've always had is, is it more than just a jolly? Like, are things actually being achieved there? So I was having a look at what the Davos says, the important stuff that's happened there. And they talk about in the 80s, they brought Greece and Turkey together who were on the brink of war and got them to sign this declaration not to do it. And then, of course, with the apartheid in South Africa, they, there was an important handshake moment, which was captured at Davos between F.W. de Klerk and Nelson Mandela, which, you know, they claim sealed the end of apartheid, that handshake. So, I mean, they talk about all of these things that happened. Although, on the point of F.W. de Klerk, I've got a very funny story to tell you. Yo. So, you were meant to speak at the Yorkshire International Business Convention quite a few years ago now. And last minute, you couldn't make it because of, you must have had work on and something else. So, I was your stand-in right? I was in Glasgow covering the Commonwealth Games, but because they desperately needed a speaker where F.W. de Klerk was also going to be, they got a private jet to get me from Glasgow to Bridlington. <laughs> <laughs> Not kidding. I literally landed in a field in Bridlington and I had to go and do like an economic speech or whatever. So I turn up and I meet F.W. de Klerk and all that, which was amazing. And then I, you know, I, I, was, in, I was thinking, God, I've got to be like Peston on stage, you know, deliver this really insightful speech. Pretentious. So I get up on stage and they introduce me as someone who was a former Irish dancing champion. <laughs> so, which is true, yeah. but I mean, not that big of a champion. And so, um, so I go and I'm like, ha, oh, yeah, yeah. Brilliant thinking, right, I'll move on from that. It's a good little fact, but I'll move on from that. And then the guy who's hosting it is like, can you show us a bit of dancing? Oh no. And I'm like, God, so oh, no, no, no. I, yeah, oh, yeah, no, I haven't got any music. Well, then they play river dance. I'm not even joking. F.W. de Klerk is literally sat there. And then 
I am forced basically to do a bit of Irish dancing on stage at this business convention. Sorry, that's all my fault, and isn't it? It is entirely your fault. So yeah, that's oh. my little story about um, having to cover for you. So, so, but anyway, at least you had the Davos style <laughs> private jet experience. Yeah, I know. It was amazing. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Um, but anyway, so that coming back to, to Davos, they claim that all these things of, you know, these important conversations happen there. There's also another thing they talk about being really proud of, which is this vaccine alliance. So at Davos one year, Bill and Melinda Gates and various other leaders were talking about how do we get more children vaccinated in developing countries. And at Davos, apparently, they came up with this idea of bringing together an alliance that works with encouraging manufacturers to basically produce their products at a lower price for the poorest countries in return for, you know, long-term commitment, high volume and predictable demand. So that's another thing that Davos claim that came well, from there. I mean, look, I think what you have to sort of uh, recognise is the meetings where you bring interesting, influential people together, you know, are useful in the sense that, yes, they can facilitate actual initiatives of that sort, or you, you know, promote some, some, some mutual understanding. I mean, you know, we've got the Munich Security Confluence, which is in the sort of security and defence sphere, something which is quite similar in a way to Davos, although with much less of the hijinks and fewer of the parties. And, you know, whether you're a, you know, if you're a journalist, for example, um, it's like being in a sweet shop. Because there are so many interesting people who've got really interesting information. And it's an amazingly efficient use of one's time. Because in the conference center itself, particularly, I was very lucky I had a rather sort of super duper badge, a sort of top tier white badge, which allowed me access to pretty much everywhere. And, you know, it is amazing just to be able to walk into a room and talk to a world leader or talk to somebody who runs really one of the happens. biggest... So yeah, you, like, you yeah. can actually go... Because, you know, these types of events, normally people are kind of drafted in and drafted out. They've got so there the are, whole there team are, around there are them. Levels, there are levels of access that you get, but there are, there are a small number of these badges which literally... Triple A, access all areas. You know, you could bump into... I mean, it's, there's a lot of serendipity, but you could bump into literally... Everybody. So uh, you could uh, have a we next to somebody. Which mega I'm sure I have done, <laughs> you know, as you say. As a journalist, it's incredibly useful. But the other side of it is if you are somebody like Bill Gates, it's just a very efficient use of his time because he's trying to put together an alliance, as you say, yeah. um, when it comes to vaccines. And they're all the right people are in the right place. So now the slightly, shall we say, more cynical aspect of all of this is. You know, you, you you were pointing out that companies pay a fortune, $28,000 per person with an annual fee of, you know, 50, that. yeah. Yeah. And um, why would they do that? Well, yeah, you know, it's useful for them in a status sense to be swanning around with other leaders. And we all know how much, you know, everybody's got an ego, but, you know, people at the top of companies have a bit of an ego yeah. and they want to show that they're important because they've been invited and they can afford it. It's but... But the other thing that goes on is is this. There are deals, there are commercial deals to be done. You know, if you're, for example, an acquisitive company, right, you're a company that wants to buy other businesses, it's quite a good cover to go to Davos because, 
you know, there are so many other business people there and you can have chats and people could see you having a chat with a business leader and they won't, another business leader, and they won't necessarily assume that what you're talking about is a merger. So you can do disguised So it's a way of sounding out other leaders or it's a way of talking to investors about commercial deals under the cloak yeah. of sort of doing good for the world. So I think a lot of business deals have been have been at least started there or progressed there. So as well as all the kind of so-called do-gooding, it's also a meeting to help the rich get richer. And it definitely does help the rich get richer, even while they're saying we want to give all our money away. Mm. Um, Tell me about these parties. Yeah, I mean, so they go on through the night. They include the remarkable number of celebrities who turn up. It's Davos is... Do they have one, music? one of the rare places where I've danced Ta- with uh, with Mick Jagger on a dance floor. Have you? Uh, <laughs> okay, that answered uh, the music question. Uh, Peter Gabriel was somebody who used to turn up every year. Uh, Why did he go? Um, because he's somebody who does campaign on issues like poverty and, and yeah. climate change, and so, so so it's a slightly surreal thing. And is it in like you know, is it in a kind of ballroom? Is it a kind of corporate dinner affair, or is it? So there's a big, specially created conference center right in the middle where they have amazing broadcast facilities right on the top where you have the backdrop of the Alps and occasionally prime ministers and leaders make what you might call school kid errors by not wrapping up warmly. I remember years ago, I interviewed Theresa May when she was prime minister and for some reason or other, she'd forgotten her coat and her assistant literally went mad with me because we ran two minutes over and she could see that Theresa May was turning blue uh, <laughs> because it was so cold uh, on the Better roof. Better than turning uh, red uh, though, I suppose, uh, in an overheated you know, place. Um, so there's a special conference centre where they have um, this very large room for what they call the plenary sessions and I mentioned earlier, which I think is you know important you know to get the Iranian foreign minister at this time coming into a forum where, you know, essentially most of the hundreds and hundreds of people are there will regard Iran as, a, you know, a force for bad, for, you know, some will say for evil in the world. It's remarkable that he's going to be there and and, and trying to explain, I guess, um, some of what, you know, they, they want the world to think they are up to. And if behind the scenes there are talks with him that can somehow lower the temperature of conflict, that is a very good thing. Yesterday, I was really... So Zelensky was there. He was the star of the show yesterday. Uh, His speech was really remarkable, warning to the world. He was calling on Western countries, America, European Union, Britain, to take more aggressive action against Putin. And he, he made the case in really stark terms about the threat that he said, you know, Putin poses not just for his country, for, but for the world. So that was, I thought, you know, quite a big moment. Uh, then, you know, there are these slightly less high profile meetings, but the ones that I find much more interesting. So there was a conversation about the way that we've talked about this. Artificial intelligence is the technology behind this really important industrial revolution. What was really striking is the participants in this industri- in, in this conversation were saying that they regard artificial intelligence as, you know, potentially more important than steam in that ah, original industrial 
revolution. And, you know, they had some big business leaders talking about how they were reshaping their businesses. They had political leaders. And I just wanted to share actually something that I just thought was something that a country like the UK should take note of. So I, I think I've mentioned to you before that the UAE, this will surprise uh, many people, invested a lot of money over a period of years in generative AI. They have a generative AI system called Falcon. And we should note that they have a generative AI system that is highly rated. You talk to any business leaders, they say it's extremely good. Britain doesn't have. We didn't invest in it, right? What do they use um, it for? Well, they use it as a, you know, the whole point about generative AI is it's a platform for, you know, automating all sorts of human activities, which is what they're doing. But the bit of it that I thought was really striking was how they are changing their public services and their education system because of this AI revolution in the way that we are not. Right? Ah. So, for example, he mentioned UAE is not a huge country, but they sent 400 members of their civil service and government to Oxford, right? And they did a partnership with Oxford to do an AI course so that they made sure that their leaders were really immersed in artificial That's intelligence. That's such a good that idea. Is so not happening in the yeah, United Kingdom. Key... The other thing they mentioned is that every single UAE citizen got a text message, an SMS, about how to use AI. It, it included a link and it said, download this link and start using AI. And 100,000 UAE citizens have already started wow. doing Although I that. would have thought that was and a then, scam if I'd have got that text and, and I wouldn't have clicked the link. Yeah, but it's still a remarkable yeah. project to get there. And then finally, the other thing he said was that grade five kids are taught to code you know, I think we're talking about under 10s being taught to code ah, and, teenagers and, and, and teenagers being told they have to use AI as part of the learning process. Again, none of this is happening in the UK, right? Gosh, that's and, dead interesting. And, and so, you know, as I say, you learn really, really striking yeah. and important and interesting things. Yeah, I have one final question. But you wanted to ask about parties. No, did, did I... Only where it was, but I think you said it was in a oh, convention no, centre. So, so, so the parties don't take place in the conference centre, they take place in... Please, so yeah. so the really rich people uh, rent these amazing chalets, these private houses. The big part, the best parties happen in the private houses. They're the ones that you really want to get invited to because they're the super swanky ones with, with all the powerful people. And then there are some slightly more open access parties in hotels, which are... Less interesting. Yeah, and we should probably say that I'm sure the World Economic Forum have nothing to do with any of the extracurricular things that happen outside of the event. This is another opportunity for me to pay you 20 quid. If you want to know, actually, all about the slightly, should we say, livelier side of Davos, it is the conclusion of my latest thriller, The Crash, ah, is set there in there we Davos. go. So you can tell it in fiction, all the things you can't say in your factual books. I love it. Uh, right, that kind of brings us neatly to the end of this. And hopefully we've uh, told you a bit about Davos that you didn't know already. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode, won't we? We're going to be talking more about the post office scandal, what's happened, in particularly and, and one particular of folks and Fujitsu. Yeah. And uh, the Red Sea, because that is uh, a big problem, isn't, isn't it, for world trade at the moment? So we'll and, be talking about that. And the question about what that's going to do to inflation. Yes. Uh, now that, you know, we've seen latest figures, inflation in the UK is, we hope, temporarily stopped falling. Uh, so all of that tomorrow. But thank you very much for listening to us uh, today. That's it from The Rest is Money. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.